I'd like to welcome you. My name is Mason. I'm the lead pastor. And for me, the holidays are officially over because uh, my birthday was yesterday. So the sort of our holidays in the Ballard sort of greater Ballard dynasty are from um, Gary Ballard's birthday on December 22nd to mine on January 5th. And so the, the season of rejoicing is now uh, behind us. This is an important morning. It's the first in, in 2019. I'm glad that you are here. And as we sort of reflect on the new year, I just want to remind us of sort of who God's called us to be. In many ways, love and common mission come together, and at the intersection of love and shared mission is something I call biblical community, right? right? Friendship, ultimately community, as we think of it in the Bible, is going somewhere together, right? A healthy marriage is a spiritual friendship based on a common destination. You're going somewhere together. You're, you're traveling somewhere together. And I think healthy churches are the same way, right? We, we love each other on the journey, but we're going somewhere together. And so I think about sort of this broad vision statement we have. Resurrection is a New Testament church longing to see God bring life from death in West Virginia and among the nations, right? We're not that different from every other church. We're actually planting and wondering, like, how can we just be as boringly Christian as possible, right? What are the boundaries of Christian orthodoxy, and how can we stay within those boundaries? Like, how can we be a faithful expression of the local church of the New Testament? We are a New Testament church, and what we want is to see God bring life from death by the power of His Spirit in our lives, in our neighborhoods, in our families, in our city, and across our state. We have what we call five distinctives. I just want to share these as we kind of look forward as a church, right? If together we are a local church, a gathering of God's people who want to live in sort of accordance with the way the New Testament church lives, uh, we're desiring together God to bring life from death in West Virginia and among the nations, right? What sort of distinctives mark us on this journey? One, we always say we live as a family of missionary servants. Remember your baptism, you were baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Being baptized in the Father, we are his children. Being baptized in Christ the King, we are his servants, and we serve in his pattern and his name the entire world. Being baptized in the Spirit, we have received God's Spirit. We are conduits of God's blessing. We are ambassadors of the gospel. Remember your baptism. I baptize you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. We are a family of missionary servants. We worship in forms that are distinctively Christian, right? We want to come together and worship in a way that is Christian. Our services include a confession of sin where we acknowledge the fall of man. We acknowledge the reality of our own brokenness. And together we hear the gospel week in and week out. And we're reminded that Jesus has come to fix that. We fix our minds and our hearts on God's word. We sing psalms and spiritual songs. And every other week, so next week... We take the Lord's Supper. We do the sorts of things that Christians do throughout time and space. Three, we leverage our resources for the good of our neighbor. We just believe that it's not about us. It's not about how big we can get, how cool we can be. It's how faithful can we be to Christ and his mission. How can we leverage all that we have and all that we are to show the love of God and make disciples of all nations? 
Four, we seek to plant new churches from new believers. 2019 is a crucial year for that vision as Risen City Church moves from a Sunday night sort of core team gathering later in the year to a Sunday morning church service where we are hoping to serve people on the west side of our great city. We help take the gospel to the nations. We have pathways and avenues where if you feel called, you can serve in places like South Asia or in Central Europe to make disciples and plant churches among all peoples. That brief overview is just a reminder of who we aspire to be, who we believe God's called to be, and though we so consistently fall short, may we continue living up to that desire and that calling in 2019. Amen. Now, we're jumping into a several-month journey through the book of Exodus. The series is subtitled, Foretaste of Deliverance. So why Exodus, right? Why would we read a book so ancient? I think it's worth noting that uh, the beginning of Exodus is dated about almost 2,000 years before the coming of Christ, and we know we're about 2,000 years after Christ. So when we look back at Jesus' time, right, Jesus in their day, they're looking back at the time of the beginning of Exodus, right? This is an ancient, ancient text. With all that I have going on in my life and all the pressing questions I have, why should we spend an hour every Sunday gathering together, singing songs, and reading an ancient text? What advantage is there to coming each week and listening to the exposition of such an old book? Well, before we can really answer that question, we have to ask a related question, and that is this. How should we read the Bible? How was the Bible intended to be read? A scholar at St. Andrews University in Scotland, N.T. Wright, had some great thoughts on this, and allow me to sort of paraphrase them uh, for our sake this morning. The Bible is not written in order to be read in 10-verse chunks. I think we have cut it down to size. Obviously, some portions of the Psalms can stand alone, or even passages in books like James can stand alone in a 10 sort of verse chunk. But most books in the Bible, books like Genesis, books like Exodus, books like Isaiah, books like the Gospels, they're meant to be read and experienced as a unit, as a whole, as a story. We come to texts like these then, like we're coming to a symphony in an old theater. We experience the beauty of the whole. Imagine going to a concert, listening to the first 10 bars of Beethoven's fifth, the conductor suddenly stops and says, okay, I hope you can apply that to your life. Come back next week for the next 10 bars of the song. The meaning of the symphony is found in its context, and we appreciate it because the whole thing impacts us, not simply because its component parts are factual and correspond to my felt needs. So why Exodus? How do we read the Bible? We approach Exodus as we would stand before a symphony. A masterpiece is before us. God's living word and his incredible story will captivate our hearts and awaken our minds as we stand with Moses before a burning bush, as we hear Moses command the Pharaoh to let God's people go, as we walk with the Israelites on dry land with the sea on either side of us, as we wander through the wilderness eating manna from heaven and drinking water from a rock, as we see God's glory at Sinai and as we build the tabernacle we get a foretaste of deliverance. 
Why read Exodus? Because we look at Exodus through the cross of Jesus Christ. And we mine the depths of this beautiful, beautiful narrative to learn more of the treasure that Jesus is. This is not simply ancient history. This is our history. This is our story. Now, before we jump into the text, I have a few disclaimers. Uh, Exodus is a long book, right? And so it's going to take a long time for us to get through this. Um, I won't preach the same way every week. I won't approach the text in the same exact way every week. For instance, this morning, if I weren't introducing uh, the sermon series and if I weren't sort of reminding us of our vision and mission and wanting us to get signed up and connected, which I'll talk about at the end of the service, I would probably have preached one and two because there is some correspondence between chapters one and two. Some weeks we'll bear down word for word on a small passage like we did in Galatians. Other weeks we'll look at a chapter or a couple chapters and we'll see the themes in those chapters and then explicate those themes. That said, look with me in chapter one and let's sort of get our bearings together. Let's sort of orient ourselves for the forthcoming narrative. Let's, if you will, just stick with our metaphor for a moment, listen to the prelude. And that is the title of today's sermon, A Prelude. Now there are three portions of our text today, if you're taking notes. First will be in verses 1 through 7. We'll call this um, increase in Egypt. Second will be verses 8 through 14. We'll call this opposition in Egypt. And third will be verses 15 through 22. And we'll call this the faithful in Egypt. Look with me in Exodus 1. These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Ishkar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan, and Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. All the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons, and Joseph was already in Egypt. Now, let's look in verse 1. Two names are used to speak of the same person, right? Israel and Jacob. This reference from the get-go reminds us of the narrative in Genesis where God declared that Jacob would be called Israel. The narrative of Exodus then, picking up on this name, is connected to the narrative in Genesis. I would say, if I were a culinary expert, that Genesis pairs well with Exodus. And so, as you're reading through your Bible plans this January, and perhaps if you're reading through Genesis, I think that will really help your understanding of Exodus. The promise God makes to Abraham early in the book of Genesis, he reaffirms with Jacob. And that promise will continue through the sons of Israel, which at the beginning of this text is about 70 people. So arriving in Egypt is a crew of about 70. 70 faithful, 70 people through whom God would bless the nations. Now, Joseph dies in verse 6, and all his brothers and all that generation. But the promise of God would keep going. Verse 7, but the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. The multiplication of that 70 in this land is happening here in verse 7. The people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. That 70 turned into a whole lot more. They're growing into a great nation. The promise to Abraham is, looks like it's sort of being fulfilled. In one sense, it is being fulfilled, but they have no idea how long it will take for that promise to be fulfilled. And things are going great 
until they're not. Verse 8. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. You can almost hear the ominous notes of verse 8. It's like when you're a football coach, right? And a new athletic director is hired who didn't hire you. Or it's like you're an employee and you didn't necessarily do the greatest job, but your boss really liked you. And a new boss is hired, right? There's a change in circumstance. There's a change in leadership. And we're not sure how that's going to affect us. There arose a new king who did not know Joseph, verse 9. And he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many, and they're too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. It's like, slow down, buddy. You know? He's like, they're getting so strong. If, if war breaks out, they're going to rise up. They're going to join our enemies. And they're all going to fight against us. They're going to work to take us out. He's paranoid. Uh, megalomaniacs are often always paranoid. So maybe if you're always paranoid, you're thinking too much about yourself. But that's another sermon. We'll save it for later in 2019. So verse 11, therefore, they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh store cities like Pithom and Ramses. But the more they were oppressed, what's the next phrase? The more they multiplied. Right? The king of Egypt's plan is that, listen, man, I'm getting really, really concerned about these Hebrew people, about the Israelites. They're growing, they're multiplying, and they're doing so rapidly. And so to make sure that this stops, let's just enslave them. Like, let's just put them in the bonds and dregs of slavery, and let's just call it a day. But the very thing he's meaning to stop multiplication with is the very thing that God sends multiplication through. Verse 11, I'm sorry, verse, verse 13. So they ruthlessly made, ruthlessly, I'm having trouble saying that this morning. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and in all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. Look at the sort of language that, that Moses, who's uh, widely attributed as the author and we believe is the author of Exodus, look at the sort of language he's using, right? They ruthlessly made the people work as slaves. They made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. All these sort of adjectives and describing words that help us understand how painful and how difficult was the time becoming in Egypt. God's people are oppressed and exploited. Conduits of blessing for the nation are serving as conduits of kingdom building for Pharaoh. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, the more they spread abroad the territory. And when we start thinking about that, we can hear some more promising notes. We can begin to hear, if you listen closely enough, that things aren't quite working the way Pharaoh had intended. His attempts at subjugation are actually working to increase the nation of Israel. But things are still far from cheery. Look with us in verses 13 and 14. I just read that, sorry. I think chapter 1 asks a question that chapter 2 answers. And it's a question and answer that is pervasive throughout the book of Exodus. And that question is this, where is God? Where is God? 
You know, the, the, these 70 people have arrived here. They're multiplying across the land, uh, but the king of Egypt gets afraid of them, and so he begins to sort of um, subjugate them to him. There's ethnic tension. There's, there's, there's divides between people now. One people is being oppressed by another people, and you wonder, man, if you're a kid born then after the 70, right, things were never good for you, right? You don't really remember being a powerful uh, people or a happy people or a free people. You're perhaps born in slavery sometime later, and you um, just are wondering, where is this God of promise? Who is this God of covenant? A powerful, powerful answer to that question, where is God, is coming. But before it comes, we get a faint, faint reminder that even while we're asking that question, where is God, God is present and God is working. And that reminder comes in the form of two ladies, one named Shifra and the other named Pua. Look with me in verses 15 through 22, the final portion of our text that we're calling the faithful in Egypt. Verse 15, then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shifra and the other Pua, when you serve as midwife to the Hebrew women and you see them on the birth stool, if it's a son, you shall kill him. If it's a daughter, she shall live. Verse 17, I think, is my favorite verse in our text this morning, right? But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. But the midwives feared God. Imagine being one of these midwives. The king comes to you, and he says, hey, listen, ladies, uh, when you're with a Hebrew woman and she's about to give birth, as soon as you can discover that it's a boy, I want you to kill it. I want you to kill it. And if it's a girl, that's okay. She's fine. Notice my big air quotes here. She's no threat. She's no threat. Verse 17, but the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. So here we have two ordinary slave women who find themselves in defiance of the most powerful person in their lives. I don't care what he says. I don't care who he thinks he is. I ain't doing it. I don't think the girls did this with bravado. I don't think they did this with bluster. I think they probably did this with great fear. Because to be in defiance of the king is to certainly risk your life. I think of a scripture when I think of their actions when they refuse to kill these kids. I think of perhaps these women being innocent as a dove and wise as a snake because in verse 18, the king finds out that they haven't been killing the boys like they were supposed to. Look with me in verse 18. So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, why have you done this and let the male children live? Verse 19, the midwives said to Pharaoh, because the Hebrew women aren't like the Egyptian women. For they're vigorous and they give birth before the midwife gets there, right? So she said, listen, we can't kill him. Like by the time we get there, the baby's already there. Nothing we can do about it. Sorry about it, right? Is she lying? Maybe. Maybe God made the Hebrew women more vigorous. Maybe she uh, most likely, I think, they probably just sort of turned a blind eye when the Hebrew women were being born so as to uphold their sort of integrity and also be faithful to God. But the point is simply this. They didn't listen to the king. The point is simple. They didn't answer to Pharaoh. They answered to the God of covenant. They answered to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They answered to their king. They answered to their God. And when the commands of an earthly king came in conflict with the ones of their king, they did not submit to the earthly ruler. 
innocent as doves and wise as snakes. Verse 20. So God dealt well with the midwives. God saw their actions. God saw their obedience, and God dealt well with them. And the people multiplied and grew very strong. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. Where is God? In chapter 1, where God's people are being enslaved and things that were trending up are now trending down, where is God? He's blessing the obedience of his people. He's in the quiet and he's in the loudness of the birth room. He is seeing to his people's multiplication, even in the midst of their bondage and even amidst the decree of an evil king. You know, you hear about strong women in the Bible sometimes, but you don't hear much about these two women. These two have to start getting some love. Let's just rename our church, right? Shifra Pua Community Church. Maybe Shifra Pua Baptist Church. I don't know. We'll figure something out there. But for real, right here from the very beginning of the text, opposition to the king of Egypt is coming from the very people he thought were no threat to his power. <laughs> so now he's like, hey, hey, kill the boys because they can rise up and, and, and kill me. Kill the people who are a threat to me, but don't kill the girls. Don't worry about them. And while he's doing that, there are two girls, two women, who are making sure that the people of God still survive. They're making sure that the people of God multiply. They're making sure that the covenant that was given to Abraham can get to the nations through Jesus Christ. These women, whose names you probably did not know, are playing a crucial role in God's story. A midwife slave is being used as a conduit of blessing for the nations because the kingdom of the world is nothing like the kingdom of God. Let's put our, as I love to call, sanctified imaginations on for just a moment and just ask the question, what if the midwives had been afraid of the king and had sought their safety and their comfort and their standing in society over obedience to God? Where would we be this morning? I wonder what would have become of a certain baby born, born of a young, a, ba a certain baby boy, born of a young Levite woman who we'll meet next week. I wonder how God's people would have multiplied. I wonder what life would have been like if these midwives had listened to the king instead of listening to God. What if, what if, what if, church, God is faithful through billions of what ifs. In any case, Pharaoh has had enough. He commands his people to kill every son born to the Hebrews. Verse 22, then Pharaoh commanded all his people Every son that's born of the Hebrews, you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. Notice that Pharaoh shifts his, uh, the recipient of his command from the Hebrews. He's done trusting them, right? He shifts his command to his people. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, every son that's born of the Hebrews, you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. This is his plan to make sure the Hebrews stop multiplying and become a bit more manageable. Stop playing nice. Stop trusting these midwives and put a sort of hit out. If you see a Hebrew baby, kill it. Cast every boy into the Nile. 
Pharaoh's murderous plan would swing into action, and sadly, many, many lives would be lost. But even still, God's plan of redemption is beginning to blossom. In the midst of this pain, with such a bleak outlook for God's people, I keep hearing echoes of that question. Where is God? It's a timeless question. I think it's timeless because it's both huge and small, right? It's broad, it's vague, it's religious, it's theological. Where is God? But it's more than that, right? It's, it's intimately personal. It's a question you don't just ask in a philosophy classroom, it's a question you ask on your bed at 3 a.m. when you're broken and weeping and wonder if anyone knows, if anyone hears, or if anyone even cares. Where is God? Not just where is God in human suffering, though it's a question we ask when we pick up the newspaper. Does anyone pick up the newspaper? I don't know, I'll just pick a different metaphor, right? When we turn on our phones, when we turn on our TV, it's a question we ask when we see the news. Where is God in human suffering? But we don't only ask it then, we ask it in our lives. Where is God in human suffering? But where is God in my suffering? Now I'm going to steal some of uh, my own thunder for next week because I think that you need to hear this in the first week of 2019. Look with me in chapter 2. And worship team, you guys can go ahead and come on up. We're uh, just about finished. Look with me in chapter 2 at the end of the chapter, verses 23 through 25. During those many days, the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery, and they cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God. Verse 24, and God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. Verse 25, God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. I love how open-ended that ending is. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. Knew what? He just knew. He knew their pain. He knew their hopes and dreams that had been crushed. He knew their suffering. He knew. Church, I don't know uh, exactly what you're walking through. There are some things that some of you go through that I've never experienced, that I may never experience. I can't know what it feels like, perhaps, to be in your shoes this morning, and I don't pretend to. But I think of this text in Exodus 2. God hears you. God remembers his covenant. God remembers himself. God remembers his promise. God knows his character. God shows mercy and love and grace. God sees you, and God knows. And what would happen next? Chapter 3, four, five, six, seven, all the way to the end of the book. It's what God would do about it. What we will jump into is a story of rescue, a story of redemption, a foretaste of deliverance. The story of rescue in Exodus 
foreshadows another story of rescue. It foreshadows a story of God seeing your suffering. It foreshadows a story of God seeing the brokenness in the world and at the right time and in the right way, sending his only son, Jesus the Christ, to be born of a virgin. This story is not just about God seeing your suffering or understanding your suffering or even caring about your suffering, but something much more than that. It's God receiving your suffering, God taking your suffering on himself in the person of Jesus Christ. And as we walk through the book of Exodus, we know that Jesus is the point. Jesus is the true and better Moses who leads his people out of slavery to sin. Jesus is the manna from heaven, the bread of life that all who eat will be satisfied and filled. Jesus is the point. The word became flesh and tabernacled among us. We'll read about the tabernacle at the end of Exodus where God's presence would come and meet with his people and it was a mobile thing. It would be moved around. And then in John's introduction to Christ, he says, the word became flesh and pitched a tabernacle. He pitched a tent. He moved into our neighborhood. That God has come to us from the beginning of end of Exodus. Jesus is exalted. My hope and my prayer is that you will come these next several weeks. My hope and my prayer is that you would open your Bibles on Sunday mornings and that you would open your Bibles on Monday afternoons and Wednesday nights and all points in between. My prayer is that you would know that the story of God includes you. It includes ladies like Pua and Shifra and it includes people like me and people like you, broken people, people who mess up, people who make mistakes that God will have his way. So I hope you'll join us uh, these next several weeks as we journey through the book of Exodus. Would you pray with me? Father, um, we reflect on your word this morning. And we see that you have brought your people into Egypt. We see that you blessed your people and they multiplied across the land. We saw the threat that that posed to Egyptian rulers and their attempts to to squash out your people. And even in the midst of darkness and despair, even in the midst of murderous plots, you are present. You are working through the faithfulness of your people. Lord, as we look ahead to what's to come in Exodus, we reflect on the reality that you see, you hear, you care, and you move. We trust this is true in our lives this morning. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.